welcome to Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review because come services cannot... Sharing the podcast with others on social media and other places is usually how we grow anyway. Word of mouth is great, and I appreciate it when I hear you guys doing that. In this week's show, we're going to do a deep vi- deep dive, I mean, on all the latest news surrounding the coronavirus. I wanted to do this for a little while. I've written a few columns on it, so we're going to hit mainly this new variant that's emerged. So in the first segment, we're going to cover what this new mutation of the virus is from the United Kingdom and why that's important to us right now. I'm going to go through how that impacts our public policy too. And then in the second segment, we'll do the usual dive with that I normally do into the numbers. And I'm going to push back a little bit on the media narrative that exists right now surrounding a shortage of the vaccine in many states. And then finally, in the light item segment, we're going to hit one of the most famous calls in baseball history involving Hank Aaron, who we lost this week. So a little bit of a different light item, but due to Hank Aaron's death, I wanted to highlight one of the biggest moments in sports, especially in baseball. So that's the agenda for this week, and I'll jump right in. So as I said, I wanted to spend this show a bit more devoted on discussing the coronavirus than normal because there's a lot happening with that right now, and it just seems more important than some of the other political happenings. There's going to be an eventual impeachment trial and all that, and I will cover that at a later date. But because of what's happening right now, I think it's more important to focus in on the coronavirus. So, back in October and November, I started talking about the possibility and danger of a new variant of the coronavirus, a mutation of COVID-19 that was emerging in certain places. And at the time, especially in October and early November, we just knew that this was popping up in places like the United Kingdom, South Africa, and it was localized to small towns and hamlets, and it was working towards the major cities there. So it was an issue in those specific places. So if you went into a small city where this was, you would find it in like 60 to 80% of all the population in that city, but you would not find it elsewhere. And so people were noting that this had spread very quickly in these areas and was looking to spread elsewhere. So this was in October, November, just before the election. This started emerging. And in December, this accelerated even more where... You were looking in places like the UK, and this variant had grown and was 60% of all the cases across the country and was showing up in other European countries. So now we've learned that those local variants have gone just from local to global. 
And it's the most prominent mutation that we've seen comes from the United Kingdom, which is why I'm focusing on it. And the designation for this variant or mutation of COVID-19 is called B117. And so you're going to probably hear more and more about this variation in the coming days and weeks because that is the most prominent one. And what makes this strain of the virus worse than many of the others and much more prominent is that it is far more viral, meaning that it is much easier for it to spread than a normal COVID-19 strain. So the regular COVID-19 strain that we've had that came over from China that worked its way across Europe and entered New York, that's the standard one that we know of. And it has a, you know, it's normal transmission rate, which we're aware. It's very transmissible. We know its death rate and everything. This is a mutation of that. B117 is a mutation of that. And according to current CDC data, it is approximately 50% more transmissible than the standard COVID-19 virus. And this is already with a virus that has a very high transmission rate. So B117 amps up that part of the virus where you have a highly transmissible virus and you make it even more transmissible. And The initial data for the last few months has said, and if you go on the CDC site, and I'll link to that if you want to read through it yourself, it still says this. It says that the mortality rate for B117 is the same as normal COVID-19. That's our early estimate to this, that it doesn't look like it's any more deadly than a regular COVID-19 strain, but it is more transmissible. But this is all very early preliminary data on this because we don't know quite enough on this on how it's going to interact with a much larger population because so far up until now we've only seen it in smaller local settings or just in one country and so that's the initial thing that it's not as deadly however prime minister boris johnson came out this past week and was warning that this this early data could be wrong. And in news reports out of the United Kingdom, they said, quote, British scientists already had concluded that the variant known as B117 spread 30 to 70 percent faster than the previous dominant coronavirus strain in the UK. In addition to spreading faster, it, quote, may be associated with higher degree of mortality, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said. Pat- Patrick Valance, Johnson's chief scientific advisor, explained the previous average death rate of 60-year-olds in Britain from COVID-19 was about 10 per 1,000 people, with the new variant roughly 13 or 14 out of 1,000 infected people might be expected to die, he said. Quote, I want to stress there's a lot of uncertainty around these numbers, and we need more work to get a precise handle on it. But it obviously is a concern that this variant has an increase in mortality as well as an increase in transmissibility, Balance said. So that's the story out of the UK. So the death rate, it isn't that much higher, but those early numbers do suggest a higher toll than normal covid And when you're stretching these numbers out over tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, adding a few more points to your death rate, when you're going from 10 to 13 or 14, that's going to add up very quickly in in a virus that spreads faster. So while you may... What makes this more deadly is that you're going to see it spread over a larger group of people than a normal COVID-19 strain. 
So the key thing here is to remember that you know the, the death rate, it isn't that much higher, but we do need to be careful here because it could indicate a higher thing. So again, this is all preliminary data. The CDC's website for this virus, it was updated this past week. It doesn't reflect this study that Boris Johnson and his scientific ministers what they were quoting. I was looking through it myself. It, it is also very cautious on this, and I would expect that because this is all very early data. They're trying to learn as much as they can about this. This is, in a way, you're, you're kind of returning to where you were with the spring on COVID-19 because you have a new variant that's different, that's highly transmissible, and you're trying to get a handle on what it is, how it spreads, and how dangerous it is to your population. So the key thing also is the higher transmission rate. So in that story, the UK gave the full range, the, the statistical range that we have here, where it could be 30 to 70% higher. Either way, you know, no matter where it is, you're, you're dealing with a far more viral version of COVID-19. The question is how much. It could be as low as 30%. It could be as high as 70%. And that's why you, you hear, if you're, you're reading it in the CDC data or you see news reports, they typically say the median range, which is about 50%. It's kind of like how when you're reading a, a hurricane chart and you see the cone of uncertainty, where you could go this far east or west, and they give you a cone and they plant a, a dot in the middle. So the, the, the line in the middle here is 50%, but the cone of uncertainty here is 30 to 70% here. So we're, we're waiting to see exactly how much more transmissible this thing is. So those are the two immediate takeaways for B117. It's about 50% more transmissible than the standard strain of COVID-19, and it's potentially slightly more deadly, though obviously more studies are needed on that point. And the fact that this is a possibility tells us that we should take this serious. And to kind of prove how much faster B117 spreads, you need to remember that we just noticed it in a few cities in the United Kingdom in October and November. And by December, it had spread across the entire country, and 60% of all UK cases were hitting, were just that one strain, and it was moving into other countries. And now the CDC estimates that it's in 12 US states and in many other countries. So it has spread incredibly quick, and it's not over. And to show you how much it's not over with that one, the CDC's transmission models, so they make statistical models to predict, okay, where do we think this thing is going to be one week, two weeks, three weeks from now? So it's, you know, again, using the hurricane model uh, models that you, you normally see or your storm models when you're looking at weather, predicting things where they are. This is what they're doing with this virus. And they're predicting that this strain, B117, they're predicting that it will be the dominant strain in the United States by March. And they think that that's going to be true regardless of the current slowdown that we're seeing in the United States with the current dominant strain here. So we're seeing, I pointed it out last week, I'm going to point it out again in the second segment, that all trend lines in the United States are good. We're seeing a slowdown of spread of this virus across the board in nearly all states and counties in the United States. That is good, but that slowdown is doesn't mean you're going to see a slowdown with B117. Even with that, you're going to see it take over across the country here in just a few weeks. So it's going to spread. It's in 12 states now. It'll be in all 50 in very short order. So that's how fast this thing spreads. 
So on the CDC, they currently say that in their model, B117 prevalence is initially low. They're talking through their model projections here. So it's initially low, yet because it is more transmissible than our current variants, it exhibits fast, rapid growth in early 2021. So they're kind of projecting forward here, becoming the predominant variant in March. Now, whether transmission of current variants is increasing or slowly decreasing in January, B117 drives a substantial change in the transmission trajectory and a new phase of exponential growth. So that is a very wordy way of saying that whether or not things go up or down for us right now, it doesn't really matter. Because this is more transmissible and because it's going to become the dominant strain, they are expecting that this will cause a boost in cases once it becomes the dominant strain in March because it is so much more transmissible, even with what we're seeing right now with our current numbers. It doesn't matter if those go up or down. This strain is unaffected by those numbers and it will go up. So the spread it, it, the spread of this strain is just simply too much for the current falling numbers to counteract. You're going to see some kind of surge more than likely because of it. So what that means is that even though numbers are falling right now and we're on a good track, something I've been harping on, what they're expecting is another surge in the next few weeks due to this specific mutation of the virus B117. And you might ask, well, because I know last week I was pointing this out, that it really seemed like vaccinations were driving our numbers down because that's about where you see us getting into these mass vaccinations. That's about when our numbers started going down. And and I think that's a good question. So, And it's something that the CDC addressed, too, because we are seeing increasing numbers of vaccines. And I'm going to get more into that in the next segment. But vaccines are factored into these models that the CDC is talking about. And they say that with vaccination that protects against infection, so if you have a working vaccine, the early epidemic trajectories do not change and B117 spread still occurs. So even with our current vaccinations, they're expecting this spread to occur. However, they add, after B117 becomes the dominant variant, its transmission was substantially reduced in the models. The effect of vaccination on reducing transmission in the near term was greatest in the scenario in which transmission was already decreasing. Early efforts that can limit the spread of the B117 variant, such as universal and increased compliance with public health mitigation strategies, will allow more time for ongoing vaccination to achieve higher population level immunity. So basically, if you're trying to break that down, is that no matter what we do, even in a best case scenario, this is going to become the dominant strain. It's going to cause a surge. But once that surge happens, things will level out again because by the time that surge hits its peak, we are going to hit a much higher number of vaccinations. So these things are eventually going to intersect. And the more we can delay the B117 variant from from taking over and causing a surge, and the more you slow that down, the, that means you're, you're allowing your vaccinations to really take root across the country. And so that that's sort of the, the fight against the clock, I guess you could say, that we're having right here. You have increasing vaccinations happening at a time when a much more viral version of this virus is emerging and trying to take over. So it's these two things happening in tandem here. And the more you can delay and push that surge off, the better off you will be here. This is not really a flattening the curve per se. It's sort of, you're you're trying to get time here. You're trying to push this down the road and run out the 
clock on the B117 variant to allow vaccinations to drive down its capacity to spread. So, the concern is this. If this is the dominant strain and it's more transmissible and slightly more deadly, it could cause another surge of the virus. That's the takeaway. That is the warning here from what they're seeing in their models, and that surge will happen sometime in February or March. And it's just as deadly as what we've been going through over the winter. And so I'll note here, uh, this this isn't w- what they're referring to here. It, it doesn't cover Biden's quote of having a quote-unquote dark winter. He was always basing those statements off a lack of vaccines and the fact we were in the second surge of the virus in winter. We've moved outside that surge now and are in an ebb down. And so what we're seeing here is something new that we, we were talking about back in October, November, and some in December, and now is arriving, and it'll be late winter, early spring when we see this thing start to take over. Um, the last part of what the CDC says in their statement is important. It will, they talk about the early effort to limit the spread will go a long way towards blunting the variant's spread. And as I said, this isn't about flattening the curve. It's about giving the vaccination programs time to really sink in and start giving us a real shot at true herd immunity. And based on what we know, and this is the good news about this, about B117, all current vaccines still work against it. And that includes both Pfizer and Moderna. As far as I know, it also includes Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. So those are the four that we're looking at here in the United States. So... Even with it coming, we have an answer for it. You're just talking about precautions that we take now will help allow those vaccines to seep into the overall population. So that's that's where we are with this. We have a new, potentially more deadly variant of this virus. We have a higher transmission rate that could potentially show up here. And so we're trying to basically run out the clock on that. We need to get more vaccines out. And that's why I've moved from targeted vaccinations being the preferred goal to just needles and arms. We need to vaccinate as many people as possible because the more people that have even just one dose of this vaccine, that is going to create fewer people that this thing is going to be able to infect. Because one dose of Pfizer or Moderna, after two weeks when your immunity kicks into it, if you get that, in the population you're seeing... The studies that I saw, they said that was effective for about 50 to 60% of the cases. So about 50 to 60% of the people who had one dose wouldn't get COVID-19. You still have people who can get it, but you've cut your possible number of people who can get it in half. So you do that, you add in the people who are going to have asymptomatic cases, and you've you, that kind of thing just dramatically cuts down the number of people that this thing can infect and impact on a daily basis. So that's why I've moved into that. I think it is smart and wise to send vaccines into nursing homes and elderly care centers because that's where your deaths are coming from. Just frankly, that is where your your high mortality rates are coming from. And so the faster that you get those people vaccinated, the fewer deaths that you're going to have. And also if that's where your deaths are coming from, that's also naturally where your hospitalization cases are coming from. So the more you do to help those people out and your healthcare workers out, the better off of your outcomes are going to be in the end. You're just still going to have to deal with people who are still going to get it. So I think in order to blunt the spread of B117, we need to get more needles in arms to prevent that spread, and that will protect us overall and protect everyone instead of allowing it to sort of rampage through certain communities just because it is far more transmissible. 
So that's the things you need to know about B117. Like I said, I think you're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming days and weeks, particularly as it becomes the the dominant strain. I fully expect you're going to hear more about it this upcoming week because it is starting to pop up here with, with it already in 12 states. I think you're going to hear about it being in more states as it just spreads and takes over more of the caseload. So that's all that I have to say on the new COVID-19 variant in the news, B117. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then we come back, we will talk about the numbers and the updates around that. And I'm also going to push back hard on the narrative that we have about vaccine shortages. As I alluded to in the first segment, all the COVID-19 numbers right now in the United States are good. You, you have to really work hard to find anything bad to talk about. Things are still high, like new cases, deaths, hospitalizations. They're still too high. You don't want them at their current levels. But the trend lines on all of them are headed down and sometimes even steeply down. And so those are all good things. The the exception here are deaths. Those have sort of plateaued. I would have expected that just because it takes a while to work through the backlogs that we have in new cases, in hospitalizations, and more, where you're trying to trying to you know work through all of that, and that's going to keep deaths elevated for some time while we work through those numbers. So, just starting at the top, testing remains near all time highs. The seven day average is around 1.8 to 1.9 million. Some days are higher, some days are lower. If this is where things settled, we're in good shape moving forward. Overall, we've run more than 295 million tests since March, which means we're closing in on nearly one test for nearly every American. Uh, the American population is around 330 million, so we are pretty close to that number. That's just a flat out astounding achievement on our part, and one most es- experts didn't believe was possible even a few months ago. So we are really making good co- uh, making good coverage and pace on that. New cases, so the number of new COVID-19 cases we have every day, those are continuing to plummet. We peaked on January 8 with nearly 300,000 new cases in a single day. On the last true day of data, because you really don't want to count weekends in this because they are uh, unnaturally low, we had 173,000 new cases. So we are steeply dropping. The seven-day average has dropped uh, with all these drops to 167,000, and that's with it being close to 225,000 near that that one-day peak. So we are making really good progress and cutting down the number of cases that we have coming in every day. I think this next week, it wouldn't shock me if we dropped below 150,000 new cases in a day, which would be significant process, uh, significant progress on our part. If we drop well below that, that would be even better, and it would pretty much mean we'd cut where we, where we were at the beginning of the year in half. The positivity rate is also dropping with these new cases. So testing really hasn't moved all that much. It's been near all-time highs. And so two to three weeks ago, we were at a percentage highs uh, on this, where we were around 13% of all tests were coming back as COVID-19 positive. That has dropped dramatically in those two to three weeks, because right now we are sitting at 9.2% as of Sunday. So we've dropped, you know, you're sitting here and you're watching us drop multiple basis points in, the, in just a few weeks here. So this is the, I think this is vaccinations and other things, but it's severely dropping this number. And that is a great thing to see because 
I know this is not testing playing in here because we have the same testing numbers. And if we have the same testing numbers and the positivity rate is falling, that means that we're seeing the transmission rate drop for the virus, which is very good. So the other thing that's interesting here is that hospitalizations are dropping as well. So hospitalizations peaked at around 132,000 back in early January. There are currently just over 110,000 hospitalizations across the United States, showing more than 20,000 have dropped off the hospitalization rolls during that time period. Now, obviously, 110,000 is way too high. We need it to continue dropping but this continued pace is going to ease the stress on the healthcare system. There are obviously very high stress marks in certain local communities that you can find, but with you know around 20, 22,000 people coming off the rolls in two to three th- in two three weeks, that is going to ease the pressure. The pressure is going in the right direction in that it's going down. That is good long term for the hospital system and the healthcare system. So. The thing that isn't changing, and I mentioned this at the top, at the, and I, you know, again, I would not expect it to, to change at all as we work through these high level of cases and hospitalizations, that is the death rate. It has plateaued and continued around the 3,000 death mark. So in an average day, we see around 3,000 people die from this virus, which is far higher than at any point in time. We had a brief peak in the spring where around 2,000 people were dying per day, and then it leveled off and fell pretty quickly after that. We did not maintain that pace. We are maintaining this pace at around 3,000, and it's been that way for about a week, about well, a few weeks now where we've been at this level, and we're staying there. And I don't think you're going to see that appreciably change until you see an even more significant drop in hospitalizations, because, you know, just objectively speaking, that's where you would expect your, your deaths to come from, because in a hospital is where you're going to have your worst cases. That's going to be where your people on ventilators, your people on ICUs, and so on and so forth. That's where those people are going to be. So we need these other numbers to drop before we see a drop come in in deaths, because in reality, the deaths are really where your true backlogs are. Those are your worst cases. So hospitalizations are dropping. That is a good thing. Uh, new cases are dropping. Deaths are going to stay right where they are, I think, for a little while until we work through this backlog of all the cases that are backed up in the healthcare system. So those are your main key data points that we cover every week. The new data point that I think is very important to cover now are vaccinations, and those continue to improve. So the United States has administered 22.4 million shots so far. We've delivered across the country 41.4 million doses to the states, meaning we've used approximately about 54,000, I mean, not 54,000, we've used approximately 54% of the doses. So a little over half of the doses that we have, we have used. The seven-day average for vaccinations sits at 1.16 million vaccinations a day, which is far more than enough to meet the 100 million doses and 100 days mark of the Biden administration. And because media coverage of the vaccine rollout has been putrid and just terrible, they lowered the bar for the Biden administration and allowed him to claim whatever this is going to end up being as a victory. We should hit the 100 million mark well before the 100-day mark, because this is number should continue going up. So we have hit 6.8 doses that have been administered for every 100 people, which is good enough for sixth overall in the world. If you're including small, dense countries like Israel and the UAE, 
places where the people are close in. You're not, you don't have to vaccinate a ton of people. And if you include those, we're, we're still six overall in the world, which is an astonishing figure for this country as large as we are. If you take out those small countries, and I think if you want to make any true comparison, you have to. The two best countries at this are the United States and the United Kingdom, and there is not any other country that is particularly close. The two countries are just vaccinating people left and right, and our pace just is out. It, it just outguns the rest of the world. So, in short, if anyone wants to call the U.S. vaccine rollout dismal or a failure, I, you really need to specify how and why it is a failure because you have to ask compared to who. Because we are tops in the world. We are the best at this, and it's not even particularly close. The United States and the United Kingdom are vaccinating people more than any other country in the world, and we are the ones that are being called failures here. So that is a failure of the media. And on that note, I said I wanted to press back on a press narrative here. Oh, the other thing on us being the best, 34% of all vaccines being administered in the world are occurring in the United States. So one in three people who are vaccinated are being vaccinated in the United States. That's just a fact. We are the best at this. So back to pushing back on a media narrative, especially once developed here recently. The narrative is this. You'll see media reports that are saying that there are vaccine shortages in hospitals and in states across the country. And what they're doing in these places, they're saying that it's the federal government's fault that is to blame for vaccination issues and not having them where they need them. Now, there is some truth to this. There is unquestionably some truth to this. And I'm going to get into how that is impacting things here in a minute. I have no doubt there are some shortages in some local areas, particularly in states where that have really good programs at getting these things out the door. But going purely by what we know, there's not a single state that has used up its entire vaccination supply. Not one. There are very few that are above the 70 and 80% mark. Very few. You're looking at places like West Virginia, which I'm going to highlight here in a second, that have very good rollout programs and have used up about 85% of their supply. That's an astonishing figure, and it's great. Everyone else... In the country, every other state is between 40 and 60%. That is where most of them are. They've used between 40 and 60% of their supply. They get new supply every week, and they're using that, and they're staying somewhere in the band of the 40 to 60% mark. So they have vaccines in all these states. As a whole, you know, I said at the, at the, in the vaccine numbers section, we'd use about 54% of our supply. Well, if you factor that in, that means we have about 19 million unused vaccinations in supply across the country waiting to be used. And remember, we we vaccinated 22.4 million, and we still have 19 million unused doses. Now, part of this could be that some states are holding it back for second doses. I think this is a bad idea, but that is their prerogative to do so. Other states just have not done it. And for those states that just have not done it, especially those that are in that 40 to 60% range, that band there, they, you know, it's good that they've used 40-60%, but it also means they don't have a true shortage. They have supply of the vaccine. And what I've noticed is that journalists are uncritically reporting when politicians in these states, particularly blue states, are saying that they have a shortage and it's the federal government's fault and they blame all their eels on the federal government and they're not questioning it. 
in reality, while shortages could become an issue or could be an issue in some specific areas, it's not just that the federal government is to blame here. If a state has supply and it has shortages in certain parts of the state, but it still has quite a few you know, supplies of vaccine doses, that means there's a supply chain issue. And the supply chain issue is the decision of these states. If they have supply of the vaccine and they're not using it, or they have mismanaged how they're supplying their state, that is not on the federal government. That is on that state. And that means that these governors and these states have poorly planned out where they need to send vaccination doses. And if there is a shortage and they have a supply, it is their responsibility to move that product around and ensure it gets used. And that's the unasked question here in a lot of these press conferences. Why aren't more governors shifting their resources around to get unused vaccination doses out the door or to go to places where there are shortages and people need to use them immediately? That's the question that you have to answer. If you have a supply and you're claiming a shortage, you, both of those things cannot be true at the same time. Like I said earlier, some states like West Virginia have achieved an astonishing 85% administration rate, which means they've used up 85% of their supply. That is fantastic. I would expect someone, any state with that level of usage, they would have shortages. I would fully expect it. And they've done so well that, that the New York Times actually did a profile on them. And, and I actually think it's worth noting how West Virginia has done this because they were a little different than everyone else. And here's what the New York Times profile said. And I'm going to leave a link to this in the show notes if you want to look at this later. I've tried to post this and share this with some elected leaders to make sure they see this. And so here's what the story said. While other states chose the federal plan, which partnered with Walgreens and CVS to inoculate people in nursing homes around the country, officials in West Virginia decided the idea made little sense for them, where many communities are tucked into the hills, miles from the nearest big box store, and about half of the pharmacies are independently owned. West Virginia created a network of pharmacies in the state, pairing them with about 200 long-term care facilities. As a result, West Virginia finished its first round of vaccinations in nursing homes last month, while many states were just getting started. By the end of this week, officials expect to have delivered a second round of shots to all nursing homes. A growing number of governors and state health officials have voiced frustration with the speed of the federal program, which has been slow in part because of the sheer number of long-term care facilities nationwide. Some states, like Maine, have also begun looking to help local pharmacies and have them become a resource. So that's the story here. Some states like West Virginia said, it is great that you have Walgreens and CVS, but we should use an all-hands-on-deck approach because some of these independent local pharmacies are going to be in in these communities and they're going to know what is needed. And what they did was they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this differently. We're going to opt out and we're going to have a better plan here. We're not going to rely on the centralization of the federal government. And so we're going to sort of break this up and let a smaller decentralized version of this take place and let these other pharmacies help out. And they've used 85% of their resources. 
or 85% of their of the doses they have in storage. I think this is a fantastic plan. My my thing here is in some states you don't even have CVS or Walgreens involved and I see this as an all hands on deck approach. You need to decentralize this and spread these doses out as far as possible and get them everywhere as possible. You don't need people all relying on the same resource. I know in Tennessee it's the it's the local county health departments that have it. That is centralizing things. You need to break that up and spread these doses out everywhere. That is going to be the way that you get as many doses out the door as humanly possible. Because with that heart, we, we hit this back in the spring when it came to testing. We were, our testing was paltry until we started bringing in private labs and private testing centers to help us process everything. Once that happened, we started testing tens of thousands of people a day in some of these states that for a while were only able to test a few hundred people because they only had one big public lab they could rely on. Well, this is the same thing. You can't rely on one, you know, government-owned facility to do all your things. You need to spread this out. And the West Virginia model is particularly important if you're in a state that has rural communities. West Virginia had a lot of those. They're they're not alone. You're you know, across the Midwest. You're going to have all of that. Across the South, you're going to have that. In, in Tennessee, although I know we have, you have East Tennessee. You have rural communities in West and Middle, and you're going to have to rely on more independent chains to pull this off. So this is, I think, it's a great profile. Again, I'm linking it in the show notes. Uh, I would recommend it, especially if you know people who are in public policy positions. I would recommend sending that along to them. Because this is how we're going to get these doses out the door. You need to move along to this. I would love it, actually, if we had a true shortage problem. That would be a good thing. If we were right on top of the manufacturers and delivering absolutely everything that they had as soon as they got it to us, that would be a great problem to have because it would mean that our supply chain was working as needed. But that's not the full story here. We know that's only partially true in some of these states because in some of these states, they don't have doses because the supply chain set up by their states is bad, and that has to improve. So there is a shortage problem in some places, but that is not the full story. And I, I know we're going to have enough doses long term just because between Moderna and Pfizer alone, we've ordered 200 million doses. Those require two doses to get the full thing. And so you between the two of them, you've got 200 million total people that are going to get vaccinated by that. If you approve AstraZeneca and you've ordered, you know, 100, 200 million from them and you approve Johnson & Johnson and you order another 100, 200 million from them, all of a sudden you have more vaccines than you have people in the country and you are in fine shape. So by the end of the year, I fully expect every person to who, who wants a vaccine to have been able to get one. That is obviously long term, but we're going to get to that point. And that's why... Yeah, I created a list here of things I think we need to do, especially the Biden administration. This is what the Biden administration needs to do, both to get vaccines out the door and also to combat this new strain, B117. So the first thing they need to do, and this is probably the most important here, and by itself, it would probably fix all our problems. They need to grant emergency use approval through the FDA for both the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, ASAP. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine should be delivering its first data on its phase three trials sometime in the next few weeks. The last time I checked in on them, they were expecting first results sometime in the first part of February. If they could get that early approval, they expected they could start rolling these things out into February, early March. That needs to happen. They cannot delay the emergency use approval for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. 
They need to do the exact same thing with the AstraZeneca vaccine. In the UK, the, one of the reasons that they are, they are able to do a higher rate of vaccinations than we are is that they have three, not two. They have both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines and AstraZeneca. So they were able to use all three to boost their supply and get vaccines out the door. That's why they have that higher rate. We can do the exact same thing. We have all the information on the AstraZeneca va- uh, vaccination. We should push the FDA to approve that faster so we can get that one out the door too. If you get that third one and then eventually you get that fourth one out, all of a sudden you have the supply that you need and you're not just relying on the two main sources for a vaccine. You can crank those out the door. So that is the first major thing you need to do. Approve these other vaccines, go from two to four, which is going to, that'll pretty much by itself fix the supply issue. If you've got four manufacturers, then at all times you've got some kind of vaccine coming to the door and you're telling your state to crank it out and get it into arms. The second thing we need to do is to shift from a targeted vaccination approach where we're starting with healthcare workers and the elderly population, and we need to move to a needles and arms approach. The Biden campaign is moving towards that direction, and I do applaud them for that. I think that's the right thing. I also think using the Defense Production Act to get more resources to manufacture so you can produce more vaccinations, I think that's also important. You know, the Defense Production Act will get you things like vials, needles, cotton, and just all the supplies you need to do a vaccine while the manufacturers can focus on just producing as much doses as humanly possible. So we're moving in the right direction here, and it's probably going to be a month or two before that really starts to kick in because these things just take time. But that is where we are on that front. They need to move to a needles and arms approach. We need to use up absolutely every last single vaccine dose that we have. We should be as close to 100% as humanly possible. And I say that because we know this new variant, this new mutation of the virus is coming. We know B117 is coming. We know it's probably going to become the dominant strain here in the next five to seven weeks. And so it has a higher transmission rate. And so we need more people to be vaccinated because the more people you have vaccinated, the lower you'll lower the transmission rate of that part of that that version of the virus. The more vaccines you push out the door, the more capacity you have to blunt this variant of the virus. This is one of the things where a surge is coming. We know it's coming. We know why it's coming. And so the more we can do to delay that or blunt its impact, the better. So that's the second thing. The third is that with B117 coming, we need to really focus down on shutting down or protecting nursing homes of their long-term care facilities to outsider to prevent the spread. If they if a long-term care facility has not been vaccinated, we need to be very cautious with who we're letting in there because if you let B117 in one of those places, it will be worse than COVID-19. You have to protect these places first. So we have to move resources there again and treat it like the spring or this last surge where these places are the places that are being threat threatened. The fourth thing here is sort of counterintuitive, but we just flat out need to reopen schools. Straight up. Schools should be back in session, in person, in session. These are places where the virus is not deadly. It's not a highly transmitted place where you're going to get it. And teachers who refuse are teachers unions that refuse to work. They should be fired on the spot. Remote learning is a disaster. It has failed, and we are leaving the 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 educational, developmental, and mental problems that are developing here because of remote learning are things we need to fix 
ASAP because there could be long-term impacts here that we just do not fully realize because we are seeing increased suicides among school-age kids. We are seeing increased drug use. There's just all kinds of bad things here that we need to curb right now. So the threat to schools is not the virus. The threat to schools is everything that isolation causes. And so we have to end that. That's the fourth point. Fifth thing, we need mandatory testing from all incoming flights from international locales and potentially enforced quarantines from anyone and an incoming flight from these other countries because we know the new variant is already here in the United States. If you allow more people in from these other countries who have it, it's going to seed other places in the country and cause the spread to occur faster. So you've got to slow that down. Entry points, that's a place where the U.S. government has a some of its strongest powers. And so moving into quarantine, moving into testing, those types of things, other countries are doing it. We need to do that as well. And then finally, and probably the most importantly for most people, continue testing and pushing out good social hygiene policy. We need people not just masking. Masking has become this sort of cultural war touch point where it's like you're expected to wear a mask. And if you wear a mask, you somehow magically don't get the virus. That's never been true. It slows transmission of the virus. It doesn't stop it. In order to really put a dent in the virus, you need people masking. You need them washing their hands. You need groups staying apart. You need all those things happening together. That is the full program. That is what the CDC recommends. It's not just wearing a mask. You've got to do an all-the-above approach because that is going to protect people overall. Masking is not a cell policy, and the fact that we've let it become that and become this sort of social media thing is a disgrace. It's only a part. We need everything here. So those are the six points that I think that we need. Because again, light is at the end of the tunnel here. We're almost there. But this new variant really poses a unique threat because it's it's going to create this third surge of the virus right at the moment where we're getting vaccines out the door. And it's one of the things where if B117 wasn't on the horizon, we probably wouldn't have to be worried about this as much. We would be able to sort of relax a little bit. But the fact that we have a much more transmissible version of the virus right here on our doorstep about to go viral, that's going that impacts our public policy decisions and it impacts how we should be acting as people moving forward. So again, the CDC is predicting it's going to be the, the major dominant force by March. That doesn't mean by March 1, it just means by sometime in March, they expect it to be the number one variant. So sometime in March, if you get it, you're going to be getting that version of the virus. And because it's March, that means we don't have a lot of time to move on it because January is beginning to come to a close. We're about to move into February, so we really only have about a month to get to work on this. So those are my suggestions on how to combat this new variant and to start pushing back against the virus again. Get vaccines out the door, approve new vaccines, that's probably the most important one there, and give states more flexibility on how they are moving doses out the door. Centralization and bureaucracy should not be slowing our progress at all. So that's all for the COVID-19 update for this week and the new variant. We'll move into the light item segment this week to give you a break from thinking through all of that. This week's light item is based on, like I said at the top, some sad news. We lost the great Hank Aaron this past week, and he was known as the Hammer. He was the longtime Atlanta Braves baseball player who broke Babe Ruth's home run record. 
Barry Bonds eventually broke Aaron's record, home run record, but due to the fact that we know Barry Bonds used steroids, that has an asterisk next to its to to a, that record has an asterisk just to it. It's just in my opinion. That makes Hank Aaron still the true home run king. And so with that in mind, I wanted to share the great Dodgers play-by-play man, Vin Scully, announcing Hank Aaron's breaking the home... When he broke Babe Ruth's home run record in 1974, Vin Scully was there. He made the call for the Dodgers. And Hank Aaron, he did it against the Dodgers, and they stopped the game to recognize this achievement. So here is Vin Scully with the call with the home run that happened in Atlanta. And stay a professional and pitch his game. One ball and no strikes. Aaron waiting. The outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us, and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. As Aaron circled the bases, the Dodgers on the infield shook his hand, and that was a memorable moment. Aaron is being mobbed by photographers. He is holding his right hand high in the air, and for the first time in a long time, that poker face of Aaron shows the tremendous strain and relief of what it must have been like to live with for the past several months. It is over. At 10 minutes after 9 in Atlanta, Georgia, Henry Aaron has eclipsed the mark set by Babe Ruth. You could not, I guess, get two more opposite men. The Babe. The Babe and the Hammer. The audio cut off there, so I didn't have the full call, but that was who he was talking about. So that is a pretty cool moment in baseball history when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record. Pretty cool stuff, and he was an absolute legend. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.